Hi and welcome to Malicious Life, in collaboration with Cyberism. I'm Ran Levy. At an age when most of us were graduating high school, going through our rebellious phases, deciding what we want to do with our futures, Nikita Kuzmin was a prime target of the American and Russian governments, making hundreds of thousands of dollars off the criminal underground. His friends were some of the most respected hackers of their time. He'd built 76 Service, the most sophisticated malware business to date, and now, in his 20s, was working on a new 76 service so good that it'd make the first irrelevant. To fund his second project, he sold the first Gozi Trojan's source code for $50,000 plus a share in future profits to a fellow hang-up team member well-known to the hacker underground in Russia. His name is NSD, and he will make a comeback later in our story. Between 2007 and 2010, Nikita worked on modernizing his malware, mostly by contracting hackers for hire. Three years on, little meaningful progress had been made, so just as he did in 2006 for the first Gozi, he recruited some help. If you visit the Wikipedia page for Denis Shalevsky, you might find it confusing. It claims he is the creator of the Gozi virus, which he is not. But even more confusing are the apparent contradictions in his life. He's a criminal and the founder of social nonprofits, a malware author, but also a certified data protection officer. That's like being a cow and a fry cook. Most hackers look pretty bad in pictures. Unkept hair, a t-shirt, you know... Dennis, on the other hand, always looks like he's ready to give a TED talk. So who really is this Dennis Shalovsky? Is he a cyber criminal fronting as a tech professional or a good guy who fell into a bad situation? Over the following half decade, many important people would disagree on the answer. In 2010, though, when he first started working for Nikita Guzmin, Dennis was a relatively ordinary hacker in his early 20s. Working as a freelance programmer in his hometown of Riga, Latvia, he'd been short on cash ever since his father contracted cancer. In online forums, he went by the moniker Miami. Prematurely balding, skin whiter than Latvian snow, you'd have to say the name didn't really match the face, but what he lacked in melatonin, he made up for in coding skills. Shalevsky's job was to modernize Gozi by upgrading its form-grabbing feature into an HTML web-injecting feature. In the four years since 2006, banking Trojans had advanced past Gozi. In addition to simply reading off and extracting data from forms, the best banking Trojans could perform man-in-the-middle hacks, actively modifying web sessions on their host computers. You can think of it like this. Bank Trojans in the early to mid-2000s were like somebody who peeks over your shoulder while you visit an ATM. By the end of the decade, banking Trojans could build their own ADMs. 
you'd walk up, not realizing anything was wrong, even as you handed criminals your highest sensitivity information. That's what Nikita wanted for his newer, better Gozi. On September 20th of 2010, he sent Dennis his source code as a RAR file. A few weeks later, the upgraded program was ready for action. Gozi version 2 featured keylogging, screen capturing, it monitored network traffic, grabbed logging credentials stored in browsers, and hid itself from plain view by using a rootkit component. Most importantly, Dennis's web inject was a success. Whenever an infected computer user visited an online banking site, just as logging forms were loading up, the program would insert its own form onto the web page. These forms would look just about indistinguishable from the bank's website, except they would ask for even more and more sensitive information than you'd otherwise have to enter in order to view your account. So the malware didn't have to rely on bank forms asking for that information. Like a criminal who builds an exact replica of an ATM, Gozi was well-masked. Its victim might not realize that anything was wrong as they gave up their name, birthday, social security number, and whatever other data a hacker could have wanted. The only clue that something was wrong, in fact, was all the data these forms asked for. A savvy computer user might ask, why do I need my credit card number, driver's license, and mother's maiden name just to get into my bank account? But most of us are not so cautious, especially when the web page doesn't look at all out of the ordinary. The program was now ready, and it needed a platform. Kazmin brought on another partner to handle everything server-side, a role once occupied by his former partner, Exric. That new partner was Mikhai Ionat Paunescu. Mikhai was in his late 20s, tall, darker white complexion, crew-cut black hair, living in Bucharest, Romania, with his girlfriend. Online, he was known as Virus. A bit on the nose, if you ask me. Unlike Denis Shalevsky, Mikhai was not a complicated figure. There's no questioning what his motives were or what kind of a guy he was. He was a criminal, though, ironically, his father was a lawyer. Mikhai was good at what he did, but not particularly careful about it. His online footprint could have been discovered without much more than a Google search. And he was cocky. In one instance, authorities uncovered a text message exchange between he and a client. The client wasn't being responsive. Answer me, Bennett. I'm virus, he wrote. Mikhail's trade was bulletproof hosting. Bulletproof hosts provide a platform for the kinds of internet users whose content would otherwise be flagged by reputable internet service providers. There are cesspools of violent material, illegal pornography, and especially malware. 
Aside from allowing cybercriminals a platform to thrive, Bulletproof hosts provide a level of anonymity that protects clients from being traced by law enforcement. Michai was adept at covering up criminal activity. If an IP address associated with a given client was being flagged or investigated by authorities, he would move the client to a new network and a new IP address based in a new country with less strict cybercrime enforcement. Like Nikita, Mikhail approached cybercrime like a businessman. He purchased his servers from legitimate providers and usually sold them at a markup of around three times their original cost. He called his service Powerhouse, hosting around 130 servers at a time, renting them out for 100, 500, sometimes over 1,000 euros per month. Half of Powerhouse's renters were websites which hosted malware. Leaked data obtained by Brian Krabs revealed that its biggest client was TaoPao, a major distributor of spam and fake herbal supplements advertising. Other clients used Powerhouse to launch DDoS attacks or drop stolen bank and credit card information obtained with Trojans like Zeus and soon Gozi. I chatted with Mikhai over Facebook Messenger. For reasons you'll soon understand, he didn't want to speak openly about Gozi, but claims he never talked to Nikita or Dennis. The way he sees it, Gozi was just one more customer of his. Hosted by Powerhouse, Gozi and 76 Service were relaunched in fall of 2010. This second time around, the service didn't sell quite as well. The price of a typical 76 service subscription was the same, $2,000. But the market was different now. Zeus was now by far the world's biggest banking trojan. In 2009 alone, Zeus had infected approximately 3.5 million machines worldwide, far more than Gozi ever came close to. Gozi was no longer the hot new item. In one text conversation intercepted by the FBI, Nikita pleaded with a customer, quote, Why do you need Zeus? Take my Trojan. Mine is much cooler. It doesn't get burned by proactives and works with Windows 7 and Vista. End quote. This, however, paled in comparison to a much bigger problem he had. No matter whether Gozi 2 was a success or not, Nikita, Dennis, and Mihai were screwed from the start. The FBI, which, if you remember, were tracking Gozi ever since Don Jackson's investigation in 2006, were already after the mastermind Russian hacker behind the infamous banking trojan. In May 2010, they'd received a legal warrant to tap the boys' phone, intercept their online communications, and start taking 76 servers offline. The main target of their surveillance had no idea it was happening. While selling 76 service, Nikita was talking openly to people online about the kind of stuff that helped his pursuers track him down. He told one person about the make and model of his car and often publicized updates on where he happened to be at any given time. 
He gave his bank information to a client for a money transfer and to another his email address, which was tied to a social media account where he posted pictures of himself and his friends. It's easy to forget in all the criminal masterminding that Nikita was only just 22 years old at that point. But reading what he openly shared online, we're reminded of it. He wrote to one hacker about how hard he worked to get his girlfriend into a Russian magazine equivalent of Playboy. Other times, he reminisced about his plans to travel the world. On November 19, 2010, for example, Kazmin sent an instant message to another hacker. Quote, I think I will go to Thailand and then I'll go somewhere else and get lost, he said. Three days later, he was in Bangkok. As fate would have it, five days after that, Nikita flew to San Francisco. Bad idea. He was apprehended by U.S. police upon arrival. Seventy-six service was now out of Nikita's hands, but Gozi remained at large. With protection from powerhouse, Gozi 2.0 would infect tens of thousands of predominantly American and European computers over the following half-decade. According to Ars Technica, one New York resident lost $2,000 to a Gozi breach in 2012. That's a lot of money, right? Well, another two victims lost a combined $6 million to Gozi hackers. These weren't companies, mind you. These were individual people who were taken for millions of dollars apiece. All because they opened a nondescript PDF attachment in an email and then visited their bank's website sometime later. Another notable Gozi victim was NASA. In 2014, a Chinese hacker sold access to NASA's internal networks through a Gozi-enabled backdoor. The buyer was a branch of the anonymous movement, whose members used that access to leak large troves of data. The group also claimed to have momentarily taken control of an unmanned multi-million dollar drone as it flew over the ocean. In May 2011, Kazmin pleaded guilty to his crimes and began cooperating with authorities. It's easy to understand why. If subject to the maximum penalty on all crimes he was charged with, Nikita would have faced a total of 95 years in jail. Ultimately, he was sentenced to 37 months, with a fine of $6.9 million in restitution for all the money he'd stolen. Meanwhile, as Kuzmin began talking, the FBI built up the thick file on Gozi and its distributors. They tapped online communications and identified servers. Among their data was a phone number with an area code based in Bucharest. In fact, it was registered to a company called KLM Internet and Gaming SRL. That company, in turn, was registered under the name Mikhail Ionaut Paunescu. According to Ars Technica, 
the FBI handed over the information to Romania's Directorate for Combating Organized Crime, which in turn received a warrant to tap his number. Over the course of spring 2012, as Mikhai went about his daily life, each of his calls, text messages, and all his web activity was being recorded by police. Even his login information to websites was being siphoned off. Mikhai's entire business rested on his ability to shield others' criminal activity from the cops. When he himself was on the line, he failed to realize what was happening and demonstrated uncharacteristic carelessness. He was far less secret in his business than one might expect of someone in his position. Romanian authorities often watched on live as he visited adminpanel.ru, the administrator site from which he oversaw the status of his 130 illegal bulletproof servers. What they discovered was outstanding. All of Mikhail's business, all of his notes, were laid out right there in front of them. They were both highly detailed and surprisingly unconcealed. Each of his servers had a number, an address, a port, a name associated with its renter, the price he bought it at from a legitimate provider, and the price he sold it for. He even wrote little notes about what each server was being used for. For example, spyware slash malware, Facebook spam, or simply illegal. All that was needed was for Mikhail to confirm himself as the proper owner of that phone he was using to access his illegal black market business. One day, he called the Romanian Commercial Bank to ask how he could withdraw $20,000 from his account. When asked for his name, he stated it, Mikhail Ionaut Paunescu. When asked for his ID number, it matched the national record. And that was all the authorities needed. On November 27, 2012, Mikhail was arrested at his home in Bucharest. He says he was not surprised. Someone let him know that the police was on to him, and so he was expecting a knock on the door to come at any moment. When I asked him why he didn't flee Romania if he knew he was about to be arrested, he says he figured that if he stayed in the country, he won't be deported to the United States to stand trial there. And he was right. He was arrested for four months, but not deported. The criminal case against him is still being processed by the Romanian judiciary system, which is why he was reluctant to talk openly about his ties with 76 service. He says he has a family now, and if he could go back in time, quote, I would change a lot of things, end quote. Denis Shalevsky was arrested in Latvia that same month. But his case was quite different. As his story became known to the public, he became a kind of martyr figure in his home country. Latvian courts ruled that Dennis should be extradited to the United States for his crimes. He appealed the decision twice and lost both times. But he was not immediately sent to the United States. People in high places took issue with his case, believing that the potential punishment was not equal to the crime. Dennis was facing up to 67 years in an American jail cell, all for writing just one component of a malware 
bought and sold by much more hardened cyber criminals than he. In a public statement, Latvia's foreign minister compared Dennis to Gary McKinnon, the autistic script kitty hacker from Britain who could have been sentenced to life's prison had he been extradited to the United States. Dennis, like Gary, had a groundswell of support from local citizens who hardly viewed him as the evil mastermind he was portrayed to be in American reports. While awaiting his sentencing, for example, he founded several non-profit organizations meant to help his local community. On August of 2013, the country's cabinet ministry voted 7-5 to five in favor of the extradition, with one abstaining vote. The decision was probably agreed upon in light of a plea agreement Dennis signed with U.S. law enforcement, stating that he wouldn't contend with any prison term amounting to two years or less. He was shipped overseas in February of 2015. In September 2015, he pleaded guilty in U.S. court to conspiring to commit computer intrusions. He told the jury that he was working as a freelancer at the time he wrote Gozi's inject feature and that he did it as a way to raise money while his father was fighting cancer. I must say it was the biggest mistake, he admitted. In January of the following year, after 11 months in Latvian prison and 10 in U.S. prison, a New York District Court judge concluded that Dennis had been punished enough, sentencing him to time served. In explaining her reasoning, she cited Dennis's relatively minor role in the operation and the relatively little money he earned from it. She told the court that Dennis's, quote, unusual individual characteristics will not cause others to follow in his footsteps by my not giving him a longer sentence, end quote. But that's not where our story ends. The legacy of Gozi reaches far past what happened to Nikita or his partners. Long after they all exited the picture, Gozi continued to find success in the wild. The code spread around and, like Hexdoor before it, Gozi became less a single Trojan than a template for many hackers to make their own Gozi-like Trojans. For example, there was the Russian crime syndicate under the title of Project Blitzkrieg. On September 24, 2012, as Nikita Kuzmin sat in American custody and police forces in Latvia and Romania prepared to arrest Denis Shalovsky and Mikhail Paunescu, two Russians shot a recruitment video. You are listening to Oleg Sevolodovich Tolstink, otherwise known as Vors Vakone. He's standing with a business partner. Remember when Nikita Kuzmin sold off Gozi's source code for $50,000 to fund his second project? A friend, and even more notorious Russian hacker of the time, was his buyer. He went by the name NSD. In the power vacuum left by the arrests of Nikita and his co-conspirators, 
Oleg Tolstink began Project Blitzkrieg. He, NSD, and their co-conspirators, the NeverQuest crew, had their own advanced version of the second Gozi program and a new idea for how to monetize it, a freemium model. Say you're a hacker and you'd like to join a criminal syndicate. Well, here was your chance. You could apply to join Project Blitzkrieg simply by demonstrating capability and loyalty in an online interview. From there, you will receive the builder kit, a manual, and training. A $400 educational fee could be waived if you possessed your own server, bots, and accounts. Once you've passed your training, you were part of the team. For four years, NeverQuest crew prepared this scheme. They improved on Gozi's source code, adding a feature that would allow a hacker to access a victim's bank account by cloning just about every component of the infected computer's identification. Then they announced their scheme to the world, writing, quote, after we have 100 active members of the system, each one will be given a large number of accounts and loads with no upfront payment, i.e. you don't have to invest money, but rather learn to use the Trojan and wait for a large number of accounts from us. The goal, together and mass and simultaneously process large amounts of the given material before anti-fraud measures are increased. End quote. It's kind of genius, right? Either that or stupid. The plot became known to security experts around the world who could only wait to see what would happen. It turned out in the end that Project Blitzkrieg wasn't a blitzkrieg so much as a slow drip. NeverQuest used Gozi to hack many individual bank accounts over 2012 and 2013, but none of such a grand scale as was promised. Using Gozi, they cracked 1,600 StubHub accounts, stealing $1.6 million worth of concert tickets with the intent to resell. Seven members of the group from New York, London, Toronto, and Spain were arrested. No Russian was taken into custody, and by all accounts, both Vov Zakone and NSD remain free men to this day. Which brings us to a larger point. What connects Nikita Kazmin, the main character of this story, with Oleg Tulstink, a successor of this enterprise, is not just the code that they shared. It's how people like them end up the way they are. Consider this. Why did Oleg feel comfortable showing up on camera promoting a criminal enterprise? The answer is actually right in his name. If you translate Vovzakone into English, it means thief-in-law. Thief-in-law is a Soviet term, referring to a class of criminals that operate outside the purview of the law. Nikita and Oleg are thieves-in-law. If Nikita never traveled to California, he'd have remained a free man and a multi-millionaire to this day. Russian authorities almost certainly would not have arrested him, just as they hadn't arrested any Russian members of NeverQuest crew. 
Don Jackson once describes Nikita's, quote, enthusiasm for the idea that internet fraud, especially against Western targets, was a legitimate profession with better pay and perks than working for local computer and software retail outlets, university labs, and ISPs, end quote. The statement seemed ridiculous at the beginning of our part one episode. But Nikita was right all along. Cyber fraud is a legitimate profession with better pay and perks than ordinary tech jobs in Russia. In Russia, it is no crime to do what either of these men have done. We opened the first part of this two-part episode with a question. How does somebody end up becoming a hacker? It's a complex question without a single answer. One way to become a hacker, for example, is to be like Denis Shalavsky, skilled but in financial debt, in a situation where carefully considering the consequences of your actions falls short of meeting your immediate needs. Or you could be like Mikhail Paunechku, talented but amoral. Or you could be a Nikita Kuzmin. He could have grown up to be a successful tech entrepreneur, a security professional, or anything else he set his mind to. But he was born into a particular world around certain kinds of people and at a young and impressionable age turned towards the criminal underground. Why did he do this? For the same reason Oleg and NSD did. Because it was the rational choice. Young boys like them stood a better chance of owning Toyotas, nice clothes, big houses in nice neighborhoods if they used their talents maliciously against the right targets. The Russian state benefits from nurturing and protecting thieves in law who cause havoc against their Western adversaries but can't reasonably be tied to the government. Gozi is a malicious Trojan that caused hundreds of millions of dollars in losses for individuals and businesses across the Western world. But the story of Gozi is how a generation of cyber criminals was born out of a system that encourages young men to go rogue and use their promise and talent towards attacking the West. Most importantly, the lesson of Gozi is that the difference between a talented hacker and a talented cybersecurity expert might not be as innate as you'd think. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. In our last episode, I asked you to tell us what made you take your first steps in cybersecurity or the tech industry in general. Jana from Toronto, Canada wrote, quote, "A friend who was already in cybersecurity told me about the five eyes. I couldn't believe it, so I watched a few videos and took a $12 course on Udemy as an introduction to cybersecurity. Couldn't stop since then. End quote. To those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, the five eyes, 
not to be confused with Five Guys, which is my favorite junk food joint in New York, is an intelligence alliance comprising of the US, UK, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Wikipedia claims it is the largest espionage alliance in history. It's a very interesting topic, and perhaps we'll expand on it in a future episode of Malicious Life. Both DJ Jennings from Nebraska and Six-Ton Spacefly wrote to say that the movie Hackers was their inspiration. Jennings wrote, quote, I wanted to hack the Gibson. And Six-Ton Spacefly wrote, quote, I saw that movie in 1995 and knew exactly what I wanted to do in life. One day I'll be elite like Zero Cool. Smiley. End quote. Maria from Luxembourg wrote, Years ago, I found one vulnerability and was able to access some data, and this happened unexpected, actually, after just some tries and commands. The feeling was interesting. End quote. I think many of us can relate to that feeling, Maria. Robbie wrote, quote, Hi, Ran, love the show. I work in web hosting and was always interested in how websites were compromised. And the best way to beat the hacker is to become the hacker. So I started learning how to break websites and servers. End quote. Become a hacker to beat the hacker. That's so zen. And lastly... I, Dizzy Pirate from India, wrote, quote, The very first time I was introduced to the world of cybersecurity is when I felt that rush when listening to the episodes of Darknet Diaries. Then from there came to Malicious Life, and I'm hooked to it ever since. Here I am now, a guy trying to protect online privacy. End quote. Thanks, IDZ Pirate. It's an amazing feeling to know that what we're doing here in the podcast helped you find your passion. Really, really amazing. Thanks to all the listeners who wrote their answers. We'll be back with a new question for you next week. If you have a topic or a question you'd like to suggest for the podcast, I'm more than happy to hear about it. Write to me on Twitter at at ranlevi, that's at R-A-N-L-E-V-I, or via email at ran at ranlevy.com. That's the place for me to add a shout out to Dr. Hapgood from England, who suggested a neat topic for the podcast, and Kevin from Walla Walla in the US, who wrote in to say he loves the show. Thanks, guys. Our website is malicious.life, where you'll find all of our past episodes and full transcripts. Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Thanks again to Cyber Reason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. Bye-bye.